You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Mason Pasha. This episode is part of a series that highlights Indigenous leaders in education and unpacks their research, their leadership styles, their connection to place, and their identity. Together with my co-host, Dr. Jason Cummins, we hope to spotlight the ways that the education system can and must learn from these leaders and their critical work. Jason, would you mind introducing yourself? Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Cummins, a member of the Abzalaga Nation. Name is Abujiagada, and right now I'm a assistant professor at Montana State University, and I'm coming to you from Montana, and happy to be here this morning or this afternoon or this evening or whatever time it is for all of you listening. And we're happy to have with us um, today Dr. Holly Mackey. And um, welcome, Dr. Mackey. You want to tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, hi. It's actually, it's great to be here, um, particularly to have a conversation about Indigenous education. I'm an associate professor of education at North Dakota State University and currently work on a number of National Science Foundation grants where we're looking very intentionally about the connections between Indian education, cultural responsiveness, and ways that we can improve schools for Native students. And and so having the conversation, I think, is important. But um, I also served as the executive director for the White House Initiative on Indian Education um, previous to this. So most of my career has been in Indian education and policy, um, former teacher in my home school district on my reservation, and now really look at leadership preparation for primarily non-Native educators to think about the ways that they can strengthen those cultural connections with tribal students. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing. Um, I was honored to jump into a lot of your work in preparation for this. So I, I, I want to just kind of give a little bit of a highlight reel throughout the conversation and have you speak to some of your some of your topics. Um, but one that struck me was your book, Beyond Marginality. Um, and I would love for you to just kind of give an overview of some of that work to our listeners. Beyond Marginality was sort of a passion project. A number of us had come together and, you know, my, my co-editor, Elizabeth Murakami, you know, we started to have conversations about how we do research and how we understand the lived experiences of people who do not come from a Western notion of, of research of what is and what isn't. How do we know what is true? How do we, how do we make sense and create spaces where all types of knowledges are valued? And so with that book, you know, there's, I'm I'm sure as you've looked at it, there's a number of authors in there that talk about different types of diverse worldviews. But for my section of it, I focus specifically on disability and indigenous ways of knowing. And the two are, are really important to me because, you know, in our communities, the concept of disability wasn't a thing, right, in the way that it is now, where we have policies for it and we think about the ways that students, right, are segregated primarily in special education and it's you know for a good purpose to provide them additional services but the focus was to think about the ways that we could systemically restructure schools to where they don't have ableist sorts of leanings to begin with meaning you know instead of trying to make something accessible to those who have challenges why don't we think about creating spaces that are accessible to everyone without having to call attention to those differences And part of my thinking on that came from um, a conversation I was having with another colleague where he had said, you know, it's really interesting the ways that non-Native people view water. And if you look at maps, if you look at geographies, 
water is a border. It's a separator. It's something that um, defines people from other people. And he said, you know, when in our communities, water is a bridge, right? Water is a connector. And so I started to think about from an indigenous lens, what does that mean? And really dug into the research about disability. And we don't see in the literature anything about disability in our communities until Western types of research get introduced. And what we saw instead were stories intended to teach us about who we are and where we should be going. And so for somebody who might be born with a physical disability, right? They weren't seen as a hindrance necessarily to a community. They were teaching the community to slow down. You know, somebody with a mental illness, for example, or a mental disability was not something that we had to deal with and figure out how to to incorporate in. It was an opportunity for us to really self-reflect and examine the ways that we think about ourselves and develop greater understanding across different types of people. And then we saw this literature play out very uniquely across Maori, across Aborigines in Australia, with the Sami up in Sweden. And so we started to see these commonalities as we were talking through. And, and I just thought it was something we needed to write about because so often, you know, disability others people and it, it treats them as a problem when I just thought it was really beautiful from an indigenous lens that that for us, everybody is a learning opportunity and everybody has a place and everybody serves a role. That's really thought-provoking and just um, making me reflect on a lot of my administrator experiences where it's surprising to see that the remnants or the, the assimilation machine even affects Indigenous um, spaces in, in, in this space as well. And an example is a lot of our um, tribes in this region, the Plains regions, are still some are still fluent in the Plain Sign Language. And I've seen in the past where students who might be nonverbal, that was their primary method of communication, yet um, school officials wanted to remove that indigenous plain sign language and assimilate with American sign language. And so just that little thing there is like, why not um, make school more accessible and bring in on people or teaching plain sign language in the school for your students' sake? That is the perfect example to capture exactly what it is I was doing. Um, so I had come from a background working with a deaf scholar. So sign language is actually the, the catalyst for all of the work that I started to think about with disability where, um, you know, we, she's the only deaf scholar in the field and, and she had her interpreters and nobody ever tried to learn sign language to talk with her. They always expected she would, you know, have what she needed, but then in conference spaces, they wouldn't provide it. And so I, I actually then started taking sign language classes and went all the way up, you know, sign one through sign five and saw the similarities between the deaf community and the American Indian community in terms of assimilation, in terms of boarding schools and sort of those historical components. But then when I started to really delve into plain sign language, do an analysis between American sign language and plain sign language, where the where the knowledge systems come in that are different, and I'll have to explain this because, you know, it's a podcast in, in sign language, in American sign language that we teach students, right? It, the sign for think is, is touching your fingers to your temple. And, and I thought, well, that makes sense, right? Like think and like know is to like pop your finger up right next to the side of your head. And in plain sign language, they, when you're talking about thinking, you, you touch your heart. Right. And so there's just difference between thinking with your head or thinking with your heart. 
and the different registers. So it, it started out as a very academic sort of curiosity, like a connection. What is it that we're doing and why are we doing it? But what does it mean when think in a Western sense starts with the head and think in an indigenous sense starts with the heart? And how can we start from that foundation? How do we understand that we view the world fundamentally differently? Seeing those motions, like the one to your head with, looks more like a salute. It's kind of like this weird sort of um, hierarchical respect. And then the hand on the heart is so much more like an I understand kind of thinking um, that I wonder how those have are either related or how they even signal those things to people too. Like, I think it's removed from like, we've taken those symbols to mean different things now in our culture as well. So you're communicating beyond the signifier. And then you have students who understand plain sign language and you tell them they're wrong, right? And that they should be thinking from here up high in the head, not intuitively from the heart. And and so there's this this forced assimilation we don't even think about, and we don't like the word assimilation, and it feels ugly. And I think particularly for school leaders and for educators, nobody wants to believe that they're perpetuating continued assimilation in this modern time. But the reality of it is we do it without thinking, which goes back to the point of the book is, you know, when you know better, you do better. And so helping people understand what some of those small differences are within the bounded frames of what you can do in, you know, a publication, it really gets people curious and thinking, you know, maybe I am perpetuating these things. And, and I don't believe educators want to. I believe very deeply, very intuitively that they want to do what's right. But when you don't know what questions to ask, it makes it difficult. If that scenario was going on in the classroom, like how, what would your advice be to an ed leader or a education leader for how to sort of be responsive to that and sort of allow it to be either the primary mode of communication or even like demonstration of learning? Like what does it actually look like to acknowledge that and then encourage that? So if we start to frame the conversation specifically around students with disabilities, then we can move the needle. We can see change for students with disabilities. But in reality, we do that with English as well. Our students are coming in with varying degrees of access to their own native languages that are not sign, right? That have those same sorts of like ideological and ways of being embedded in them. And then we force them into this academic English and tell them they're wrong for believing in their native languages, which tells them that they're wrong for believing their culture has value. And so I think from a practical strategy, we also have to think about policy and and of, of course, you know, that's that's the world that I sit in very specifically as policy. I understand that tension between adhering to federal policies, adhering to state policies, adhering to district policies, while also trying to do better for students. And so in some ways, right, so we're not dealing with this idea of a zero-sum game. Like, we, you know, why is it that we're not nurturing the idea of plain sign language and bringing in elders who are still fluent or people in the community and helping them to create this bilingualism because our students need to be successful regardless. We want them to be successful regardless. So we can teach them American sign language and we can teach them plain sign language and we can do it in a way that doesn't create a hierarchy in the same way that we can incorporate native languages into our everyday schooling and validate that these are important ways of knowing and being, while also providing students the academic rigor that they need in order to be successful, no matter what their path does for them, no matter where they go, no matter where they choose to go. So it's, you know, 
I, I do love the example of the sign language because it gets at it perfectly, but I would be, um, I would caution using that as, as a, a more in-depth example simply because, you know, like Jason knows as an educator, you're like, okay, well, I can do this. Like, we're going to do plain sign language, right? So there's that piece. So, but I, but I think it, it, it goes over to English. It goes into all of the different areas. And I think another piece of it is why aren't we then teaching all students, So we think about it in terms of we're only going to do like plain sign language for um, hard of hearing or deaf native students. Well, they need to communicate with somebody that is not deaf at some point, right, or hard of hearing. And so why aren't we teaching everybody in the school plain sign language? Why aren't we teaching everybody native language? And so how do you take this idea of this dual approach and accessibility for all to normalize and then think about that with cognitive disabilities, with autism, with pervasive developmental disorder, right? Um, with oppositional defiance disorder, that tends to be one of the hardest because that's a behavior, like air quote behavior issue where they're just, you know, bad kids or rude kids and, and we don't think of it the same way. So if you have, you know, students who are docile and compliant, accessibility feels easier. But when we're talking about students that have more challenging issues, then we have to think about ourselves more and our own norms. And, you know, one example we see that comes from this from our um, Black educator community is, you know, they'll they'll see the disproportionate number of discipline referrals and they'll say, oh, well, those kids are loud, they're aggressive, they're rude, right? When Black children are no more aggressive or rude than any other child, right? Children are children and they're going to act their age and and we are here to guide and teach them. But because in that community, people might speak at a higher register or they might speak in a more direct tone, from a white lens, it feels aggressive or it feels defiant. And, and I think it's the same thing where um, we have to think about our perceptions around it because as an educator, we can be in a classroom with Native students and feel that they're disengaged because they're not responding in the way that a white student is responding with like laughter and clapping and raising their hand all of the time and interjecting all of the time because in many communities, people have been taught differently, right? And I know it's the the traditional like example that's used all of the time, but it's like the eye contact, right? Like, do you listen with your eyes or do you listen with your ears? And so we would always have when, you know, I was at Northern Cheyenne teaching, the teachers would want the students to like sit down, be quiet, look me in the eye. And that's the sign of respect and you're ready to learn. Whereas we had to push and push and push where in our communities, right, looking you in the eye is a sign of disrespect in some, some of our communities because you listen with your ears. And so you avert your gaze because you're listening with your ears. And so the students might seem disengaged because they're looking at the floor or on their desk when in fact they're just as engaged and ready to learn. So some of it is just breaking our mental models of what we believe should be or what we did when we played teacher with our stuffed animals, right? When we were six years old and, you know, because we all are experts in school, we've all done school and recognize that everybody is an individual. And if we're collectively building an understanding that we're all individuals, but we're all dependent on one another, accessibility becomes an easier task to tackle. I'll say that is the great example, the eye contact one. And we think that it's an example of the past, but it's not. You'd be surprised that it still does happen in our schoolhouses today. Um, Speak to us about your commitment to, um, 
I think, open doors for others. What's the importance of that? And I'm speaking, I guess, um, for myself and a lot of others that you've opened doors to for. And um, I remember you making the comment once that um, the commitment to avoid lateral oppression is really key to a lot of your, um, I guess, motivation. My, my commitment to opening doors stems from the fact that, you know, in a, in a Western sense, we value competition. We see limited resources as a way to get ahead for ourselves. And in order for me to be successful, I need the opportunities and I need to prevent you from having them because I don't get to, to have all of the opportunity if I'm distributing that or sharing that or passing that off. And, and for me, you know, when I started in the field, there was just a couple of us in ed leadership in terms of native, native graduate students, native faculty. And it occurred to me very early on that through graduate programs, we're trained into this model of competition. But then I would find that I would have conversations, you know, like with you, Jason. And so we have a school leader in rural Montana who has just as much to offer as these top scholars. And so it first started out with this idea that everyone is an expert within their own context and we have someone to learn from everybody. And what I saw were a lot of scholars who were having, you know, they were in relationship with other professionals in the field and then kind of co-opting these things and pulling them forward you know, not citing them necessarily or saying where they got their ideas. So as most things in my career, it, it all starts with like, I got really mad about something right? <laughs> um, and then figured out my solution. Like, what was I solving for? And and so to that end, you know, I, I really had to think about the fact that in order for us to create systemic change, in order for us to be good relatives and live by the principles that we all say we live by, the only way to do that is to provide opportunities to others, to lift other people's voices, to make sure that the people with these really creative, great ideas are able to do that. And so that was the, the first part. But then the second part was, as an established scholar in the field and, and working with um, my dear friend and colleague, Susan Faircloth, we also started to think about how do we carve out the spaces that allow other indigenous people to not only be in the space and thrive, but do it in a way that makes sense to them. Or I think about, you know, Alex Redcorn's work, his conceptual framework is Osage ribbon work. And, and so protecting not only um, the ideas and buffering autonomy for these emerging scholars with these really great ideas, but then also doing it in a way that we could leverage our social capital to prevent the national and international field from diminishing the importance of that work. And, and it became more in a really sort of um, different type of sense is, you know, like we all like one of the key leadership principles is like hire good people and get out of their way. Right. And and so I really started to think about um, like knowing that I am not the smartest or most accomplished or, you know, no person in the room all of the time to to say, like, how can I surround myself with all of these beautiful thought leaders who can really change the world? How can I build my circle with a group of like-minded people who also believe opportunity, right? 
helps all of us. And I would say that all of us have been very successful using this model. Um, you know, that's and, and we continue to do this. But also for the, the younger people or the early career people, it's when you create the opportunities and you validate them as scholars, as thinkers, as teachers, as leaders within their own right, and you don't tell them all of the ways that they have to change in order to be accepted, and you then nurture the parts of them that are the most unique and the most beautiful, we create this ecosystem of collective learning that I believe has greatly benefited our students. And, and you know, that includes, I know you had said Julian Guerrero has been on this podcast before. It's Jason. It's There's a number of us. And still, in a leadership, there's, there's still fewer than 10 faculty members who are Indigenous and working in the field of K-12 educational leadership. There's, you know, a lot more in K-12 or in higher ed. There's a lot more in teacher ed and curriculum. We're a very small group. But then recently, you know, I, I think it, it goes beyond opportunity for work. It's opportunity to laugh together. It's opportunity to cry together. It's building a network where you can say, I'm not okay right now. It's building a network where you know that when you have a success, people celebrate it genuinely. I, I, I guess one question I have is is really around like how you how you transfer that mindset or disposition toward young people like how how do you instill in young people that like desire to kind of build that collective learning and network i know you've done some work on kind of restoring student outcomes the idea of outcomes is sort of like counter to some of this conversation anyway but i'm i'm curious just how you think about that the in, enabling young people to think about collective learning collective demonstration things like that if we stressed more so the process and how we came to know that it was true Right. And then the ways that we had to work together to get to that that answer, you know, that would be something. Right. And it's, it's a very basic. Right. This like idea of like competition versus collective learning. Right. Um, and thinking about student engagement and autonomy and in what ways do we let students drive their own thinking. So taking that to, say, like a, a middle school level where we're looking in, you know, our language arts classes at, you know, how do we teach students to the perfect five paragraph essay, because that's what we have as our metric. And that's what's written in the standards, right? Is the metric for success a five paragraph essay in a creative writing class? Or is the creative writing the, the measure of success, right? And this goes all the way up and through college, even into doc programs. Is it being proficient at APA? Or is it being able to communicate, right, effectively? And so, so I think that that's one of the ways that we can also think about shifting it is, you know, we get so connected to what we believe those metrics of success are, the A on the test, completing on time, right? Um, being the first, the best, the fastest, right? And, and if we instead modeled from the very beginning, this idea of collective learning connected to community good, right? And I think that that's the piece that gets lost in translation. So we can still do group projects, but what's the why? How have you created a better impact on society? And it can be small or it can be large, and we can validate all of those equally. But we have to think about those things, you know, in terms of measuring success. And, and I see it, you know, it, it's through all of the levels, right? In, in what ways have we structured our entire educational system around competition and ranking, right? Or we don't think about deeper learning. We don't think about student engagement. We think about test scores. And I understand that there is utility 
in having numeric metrics that help us understand kind of where people are. But what would it look like if we only use those numbers to shift the ways that we're approaching instruction and instructional leadership in ways so all students can be successful and learn? What would it look like if we stepped away from ability grouping and stratifying students and thought about it from that lens of disability? Everybody in each of these ability groups has something really important to contribute to somehow making society a better place. And we structure our lessons around taking all of that knowledge together. And I see that as like the beauty of Indigenous education, where people want to talk about teaching language and teaching culture and doing these things. And I think those are 100% important. I think they should be in every single school. With the um, NIST data, there was, a, um, I guess, a, a companion document really setting the context. Can you kind of briefly cover why it's important to set the context of achievement rates of Native students? So the National Indian Education Study, for those who are unfamiliar, it runs every four years in conjunction with NAEP. And what it does is it looks at um, language and culture and opportunities to learn about culture in schools with Native students. But the report about it is then bumped up against uh, fourth and eighth grade reading and math, right? Um, NAEP assessment outcomes, right? And so when you put together... Right, a survey about language and culture devoid of the contextual indicators that would talk about rurality, that would talk about poverty, that would talk about which community it came from, who are the students, right? So it's it's aggregated at a state level, but it's not done by community. It's not done by tribe, right? And for research design issues, right? I'm sure they would certainly like to. They're just a great group of people doing the work but it's, it's not something that can be done in educational testing services hasn't, hasn't circled that square yet. Um, but what it does is it gives an impression that the more access to language and culture that exists in a community, in a school, right, or the more fluent a student is, or the more access they have to cultural activities, the lower their math and reading scores are going to be, right? Which is not true. Right. We're not teaching math in Cheyenne. Therefore, you can't say more access to Cheyenne is a decrease in math scores. Right. The two are completely unrelated. But the way that the report is presented is it gives leaders, particularly non-native school leaders, right, the impression that the more effort they put in to improving access to language and culture, right, that they're doing harm to students or to the school as a whole because their reading and their math scores are going to be lowered. Like we had a responsibility to one another as native native thought leaders in this field to not allow something to go out to our communities that would give the impression that language and culture was a deficit. And the only way that we could do that was through the setting, the context. And now there's some other pieces in there. There's some composites and, and ETS, you know, the, the folks who run the, the NIST study on the psychometric side have really been grappling with this too and trying to do right by Native students. I don't want to give the impression they haven't. But the, the niche should never be used outside of the setting the context document because it talks about assimilation, colonization, the stripping of languages. It talks about rurality. It talks about poverty. It talks about systemic inequality. And all of the things, right, boarding schools, all of the things that got us to where we are. Because when you look at academic achievement data, quote unquote, achievement data, we can look to 
1928 Merriam Report. We can look to the 1969 Kennedy Report. We can look to Indian nations at risk. I'm going to say 1993, but sometimes I'm wrong, and it's 1992. Either way, it's there. Okay? And we can look to the NICE data now, and we can see that we haven't really moved the needle. And part of that is the way that American policy in general has continued to like up the idea of what is proficient. But for Native students, the conditions of schools haven't changed. The one thing that we do know makes a difference in a student's life increased access to language and culture is the hardest for a Western leader to wrap their mind around. Therefore, it's the last step that's taken. Yeah, thank you for that answer. And I could see that, you know, whether it's a fourth grade um, science book that refers to land as commodity versus creation or a kindergarten social studies lesson defining the what a family actually is, you know, we are, I think, in America, culturally relevant teachers. It's just that the students we teach their culture to, for the most part, they are doing okay academically, but everybody else, um, that becomes a barrier because a lot of our educators don't know they're teaching um, non-minoritized culture that's embedded within all the lessons. Like it starts with the students and it ends with the students, but it really is this this continuing cycle of making sure that we are nurturing and providing opportunities for all people within the ecosystem to develop, to include our community members who might not understand schools, to include boarding school survivors who might not trust schools, to create those intentional collisions that bring people together to see one another as human beings. And from that, redefine success. Awesome. Well, thank you for that uh, provocation to, to end us today. Um, I am so grateful for your time today, uh, Dr. Holly Mackey and Dr. Jason Cummins. Thank you for being here. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much. 